Uh, so we're reading from 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a mere house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares uh, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from, away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for giving us the Bible. As we hear your voice today, please keep us from hardness of heart. Please help me to speak only what is helpful for building up your church. Please help us to concentrate amidst the heavy rain. Amen. Well, today we are celebrating our church's 20th anniversary. 20 years ago, uh, in October, no, September 2002, a small church gathering was started in Harrington Park Public School. A lot of things have changed since October, September 2002. At that point, as I said before, I was only three years old. Here's a little photo of me a few years into our church in the public school over in Harrington Park. And we've got lots more cute photos uh, and maybe not so cute photos to look forward to later on in our presentation um, over lunch at 11 o'clock. So make sure you stay around for that. But today, as we reflect back on the past 20 years of our church, I want to ask you... What's happened in the past 20 years of your life? What's the trajectory that you've been on that's landed you here today on this rainy Sunday morning, the 23rd of October, 2022? What have you been living for? Now, one of my favorite things about church is that every person here has a different story. 
For some people, perhaps like myself, who've only been alive for about 20 years, the past 20 years have looked like finishing school. That's what you've been working towards. Perhaps for you, it's been years of long, hard work. Or perhaps it's been times of holidays and travel. Perhaps you've spent the past 20 years raising your kids, watching them grow up and, and, and going out into the world. Perhaps you've had a really tough 20 years. Or maybe you're feeling a, a bit of a lull. Nothing much is going on. We've just kind of been drifting here and there. The big question that I want, to, want us to get at in all this double decade deep reflection is this. What's been the trajectory? Where have you been going? What were you doing? Why were you doing that? Looking back, what have you been living for or working towards? God's word to us today has some epic news. And my hope and prayer is that today, as we hear God's voice, we do not harden our hearts, but rejoice with trembling at his word. And more specifically, I hope and pray that we ponder the wonder and the magnitude of the things that God reveals about himself and about his plans here in 2 Samuel 7. And in doing so, I hope and pray that this might shape and change our lives going forward, perhaps for the next 20 years. So let's dive in to 2 Samuel. So far in this book, there's been a lot of action. We started the book with the violent death of King Saul in battle and David's lament for him. Then David was anointed king of Judah, while Abner, commander of Saul's army, set up Ishbosheth, son of Saul, as a rival king. And what followed was a bloody war between the house of David, which grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul, which grew weaker and weaker. In a hot pursuit, you might remember Abner, commander of Saul's army, impaled Asahel, the brother of Joab, who later then murdered Abner in vengeance by stabbing him in the stomach. To round it all off, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was assassinated and decapitated in his own bedroom by two of his own henchmen. And they were later punished by King David by having their hands and feet cut off and bodies hung up on the wall. It's been quite a bloody and messy opening to 2 Samuel. In chapters 5 and 6, David has conquered and captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. You might remember Oliver took us through that. He settled in Jerusalem. He also wiped out all the Philistines, who were Israel's longtime enemies. Last week, we heard how King David had brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem and put it in a tent that he had pitched for it. So now, when we come to chapter 7, verse 1, and we read the words, the king was settled in his palace, the Lord had, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around him, we might be tempted to think, well, sounds like all the action's over. All, everything's set up, it's all settled, whatever comes next probably not as interesting or exciting. No, not at all. I'm going to make a bold claim here. I am going to claim that this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, is in the top five most important chapters of the entire Bible. It's a big claim, especially for a rookie preacher on his first sermon. <laughs> but in this chapter, God makes an amazing promise to the house of David that the Lord himself will build a house for his name. This morning, I want us to see the bigness of God's promise, but I also want us to look beyond the promise to see the promiser. I want us to ponder the very character of God, the Lord God who makes these big promises. So let's dig in. 
chapter 7, verse 1. I hope you can see it in your Bible or maybe on the screen. The king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies on every side, all around him. Sorry. This tells us two things to orient us in the story. Uh, firstly, the king is settled in his palace. In chapter 5, we learn that Hiram, king of Tyre, another neighboring kingdom, has built a palace for David out of cedar logs. And as I mentioned, the king has already brought the ark of God into Jerusalem. But now the king's got a problem. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. David recognizes that he has been richly blessed by God with a sweet cedar palace and rest from his enemies. But now he nobly wants to see God honored by building him a nice house too. A very noble thought, you know. Uh, up until now, the ark has just been sitting in a tent. Uh, and so now the king wants to give God a bit of an upgrade. He sees that he's reached his final destination. So now he thinks, it's God's turn. Let's give God an upgrade. He shares his concerns with Nathan the prophet who agrees. Verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Notice two little details. So far, David's only been referred to as the king. Secondly, Nathan's response, the Lord is with you. David has repeatedly been described this way ever since David and Goliath times. Back in 1 Samuel 18, the Lord was with David and not with Saul. Well, what does the Lord say? Point number two, verse four. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Notice that God addresses the king as his servant, David. And he questions David's presumption to build God a house. The questioning is twofold. Firstly, God says, David, do you think you are the one to build me a house? The answer is no. Does, it, does this mean God doesn't want a house? Well, not necessarily. We see later on that God does end up having a physical house. But contrary to David's original thinking that Israel was all set up, God's not done with setting up his king, David. He's got more wonderful things in store for him. And so God bumps his own physical house building further down the line. The second challenge that God has for David is this. David, do you think I even need a house? We've got to remember who God is. The Lord God, Yahweh, the almighty creator. The apostle Paul describes God in Acts 17 like this. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Does God need an upgraded house to live in? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't need anything that anyone could ever do or give. I hope you see the bigness of God. He doesn't need our projects. He doesn't need anything. He is the Lord Almighty. But we must look how God describes himself in this passage. 
In verses 6 and 7, he recounts the story of his people wandering in the wilderness. From the time of the Exodus, right up until this moment, about 300 and 400 years, God has been dwelling with his people in a tent. I want you to see here the extraordinary humility of God. Do God's people live in tents? So does he. Do they move around all the time? He moves with them. He has not asked for a permanent physical residence because his priority has been to be with his people as they're on the move. I heard a story of a man named Sam Rayburn who served as the 43rd Speaker of the United States House of Representatives in the 1940s and 50s. The teenage daughter of a reporter that Mr. Rayburn knew had suddenly died. The next morning, Mr. Rayburn, sorry, the reporter heard knocking on his apartment door. He opened his door and found Mr. Rayburn standing there. I just came by to see what I could do to help. The reporter, stuttering and trying to recover from his surprise, indicated that he didn't think there was anything that Mr. Rayburn can do. They were taking care of all the arrangements themselves. Well, have you all had your coffee this morning, he asked. The reporter confessed I hadn't had time to do that. Well, I can at least make the coffee this morning, said Mr. Rayburn. He went inside, made his way to the kitchen and in search of coffee. While Mr. Rayburn was busy making the coffee, the reporter remembered that Mr. Rayburn normally had a stated weekly appointment on this particular morning. So he half inquired, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Rayburn admitted. But I called the president and I told him that I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. That is only a pale glimpse of the condescension of the covenant God, the God who stoops down to share in the hardships of his people, the God who is not ashamed to say that he has been traveling around in a tent with them. See how close he is. You may be forced to revise your theology if you think that deity and humility are mutually exclusive categories. If we understand God, the character of God rightly here in 2 Samuel 7, we won't be surprised when we get to the New Testament in that famous passage of Philippians 2, where it describes the Lord Jesus Christ in his unbelievable humility. He, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality God with something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the same Jesus who described himself as gentle and humble in heart. He is gentle and lowly. Chris showed us last week that humility is the key to the Christian life. He summed it up really well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself in a kind of negative pride kind of thing, but it's thinking of yourself less often. I want to suggest to you today that humility might be key to the Christian life, but humility is also key. It is at the heart of the Christian God. Let's return to our passage. Point three, verse eight. The Lord God continues to speak to the prophet Nathan. Now then, 
Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, just as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. In this section, we again gain an insight into the character of God. He is gracious in blessing David personally, but also the wider nation of Israel. Look with me in verse 8. The Lord starts by recounting his past blessings to David. Verse 8, he has taken him from being a lowly shepherd, the youngest of Jesse's eight sons, to being the ruler and the leader of God's precious people. What a privilege for King David. Furthermore, in the past, the Lord has been with David, like we saw at the beginning. The Lord is the one who has cut off all of David's enemies, so that now he is enjoying peace in his cedar palace. So far, in the past, God has raised up David as a ruler, remained with him, and gone before him to, t- to make him victorious. But true to form, the Lord God gives grace upon grace. From verses 9 to 11, the first half of 11, God now promises a set of future blessings to David and to all Israel. All in the near future, he gives four promises. One to David, two to Israel, one more to David. Look with me, verse 9b. The Lord declares that he will make David's name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Obviously, we're reminded here of God's big promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12, where God promises to make Abraham's name great. And here in 2 Samuel, God is now promising this to David, one of Abraham's many offspring. Secondly, verse 10, God blesses Israel. He promises to provide them with a place. He will plant them so they can have a home of their own. God is renewing his Abrahamic promise of land. Thirdly, God blesses Israel by protecting them from their wicked oppressors who have been oppressing them ever since the Exodus. These two promises to Israel, they've started to already be fulfilled. You see, Israel is now in the promised land. David's in Jerusalem. He's got his palace. And they've got peace from all their enemies around them. They have been planted on the place the Lord has made for his dwelling. Lastly, verse 11, the Lord promises to give David personally rest from his enemies. Remember in throughout 1 Samuel, remember how uh, David is always running away from Saul. He's always fleeing for his life. And as you read the Psalms, he's always crying out to God for salvation. Lord, save me from my enemies. God is here promising to answer that prayer, that he will give him rest from his enemies. I hope you can once again see the rich character of the Lord our God. He is full of gracious blessing. He is determined to see his people flourish and be established in their land. He protects protects them. He provides for them. He gives them grace upon grace. That is the character of the God of the Bible. David knows this. You see in chapter 5, verse 12, after Hiram, king of Tyre, builds his palace, David knows that the Lord has established him as king over Israel and 
exalted David's kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God is the giver of gracious blessing. He chooses to bless David especially with a great name and personal rest. But in fact, God is about to do something epic and he's going to do it through his servant David. Point four, look with me at the second half of verse 11. This is where God turns it up to a whole new level. Second half, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David started off by saying that he would build a house for God, upgrade God's tent to something more impressive. But here, God is reversing that back on him. God is going to establish a house for David. Doesn't David already have that nice house, that sweet cedar palace from Hiram, king of Tyre? Yes. God isn't talking about a physical house here. He's talking about David's family tree, his line of descendants. We see that that in the next verse, verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. God is promising to establish David's royal dynasty over multiple generations. The Lord himself will do this. This is how God has fulfilled his promise just before of making David's name great. And notice how he uses the word offspring. That again has those echoes of Abraham's promise in Genesis 12. Finally, notice that there's a kingdom. God is setting up David's kingdom, that last word there. David is now receiving assurance of what every king wanted to hear, that his family, his descendants, his kingdom would rule for a long time, long past that person's own lifetime. This is probably why David had so many children. He's trying to establish his family, secure his lineage to carry on his name. Now God is guaranteeing that for him. The promise then takes another turn. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name. Not only does God say that he will build a house for David, but God also says that David's offspring will indeed build a house for the Lord, a house for his name. David didn't get that gig, as we saw earlier, but rather God decreed that it would be one of David's offspring who would do that for him. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 6 when Solomon builds the physical temple. All this house business is a bit confusing. Let me give you a quick recap. Firstly, David set out to build a house for God, for his name, for his ark. God then reversed that back on him and promised that he would instead build David a house, establish his kingdom, you know, going onwards. But then thirdly, God says, actually, you know what, David? Yes, you will build me a house, but not you, your descendants, your offspring. He will be the one to build a house for my name. But in actual fact, God isn't that concerned about his own personal house. This sentence is just a, you know, a little passing comment, the real big deal is what comes next in verse 13. And it says this, God says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. Reinforced twice more in verse 16, David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom will be established by the Lord forever. Not only is God granting David what every king wanted to hear about his kingdom keep going on. But now he's extending that promise out into eternity. This is why 2 Samuel 7 is such a significant chapter of the Bible. 
because it contains such a big forever promise of God to his servant David. We're going to unpack how this is played out in just a moment, but there's one more thing we need to look at in this promise, and it's all about relationship. Verse 14, look with me in your Bible or on the screen. God says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Covenants are all about relationship. And these verses show us the kind of relationship that will exist between God and the forever enthroned house of David. It is to be a father-son relationship. Now, when we hear son of God, our minds might immediately jump to the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he is called the son of God, even by a Roman centurion at his own crucifixion. But this kind of gives us a problem straight away, because if you look closely at verse 14, it talks about the son doing wrong. And of course, Jesus never did anything wrong. He's perfect. We actually need to rethink some of our labels. In the Bible, the Son of God can refer to more than just Jesus. For example, the nation of Israel is called the Son of God, Exodus chapter 4. God adopts, chooses Israel as his own son. Here in 2 Samuel 7, we said that David's offspring will be called sons of God. God will be the father to all of David's offspring, all those kings that come from him, and they will be his sons. In other words, God's chosen kings will be called sons of God. By the way, this is where the idea of a Messiah comes from. Messiah is a Hebrew word, Christ is a Greek word. They both just mean anointed one or king. Why were the first century Jews looking for a Messiah? Why do all the prophets talk and look forward to the Messiah? It all stems from this chapter, 2 Samuel 7. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, as we read the history, there were many messiahs, there were many Christs. They were all in the line of David, and they were all called sons of God. We might automatically jump to think about Jesus as the son of God, that he is the only messiah. And we're right to think that because, of course, he is the son of God. In fact, he's God the son, which is another thing. He is the messiah, capital M. He's the most important one. But we also need to realize that this promise is also to all of David's offspring too. They will be called sons of God. What extraordinary words from the Lord our God. He has said that he will graciously bless Israel and David in the near future, reinforcing the Abrahamic covenant. He's promised to establish David's royal house, and he's promised to do that forever. And he's also shown that the relationship between himself and David's sons will be a father-son relationship. Can you see why I made that bold claim that this is one of the most important chapters of the Bible? This is a huge promise. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the big signposts along the way of God's unfolding salvation plan, which ultimately points to Jesus. As we read the Bible from start to finish, we see God, the master storyteller, revealing his big rescue plan more and more. And as we read it, we can so clearly see that it refers to Jesus. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, we hear about the promise of one of the offspring of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. Who will be this serpent crusher? 
Genesis 12, we hear of God's big foundational promises to Abraham. God's going to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Genesis 49, we hear Jacob blessing his 12 sons. And to his son Judah, he says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Here in 2 Samuel 7, David is promised an eternal royal dynasty. The Lord will establish the kingdom of his offspring forever. And finally, we, in the New Testament, we arrive at Jesus. Jesus, who is one of the woman's offspring. Jesus, who is among Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. Jesus, who is in the tribe of Judah. Jesus, who is even in the line of King David through his father Joseph. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, the town of David. Jesus, who was struck by that serpent as he died on the cross, taking the penalty for sin. Jesus, who crushed the serpent's head as he rose victorious to new life and holding the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the serpent crusher. The whole Bible tracing all the way through, it's all about Jesus. I hope you can see and I hope you get a grasp of the bigness of God's revelation plan, how the whole Bible is so cohesive. It's got one author, one message, one trajectory. And I also hope you can see how special it is for King David, who gets so centrally wrapped up in this master plan. As a side note, if you want to learn more about this whole idea, which we call biblical theology, I've got two resources to point you towards. Firstly, listen to Master Plan. In case you don't know, our very own Ben Pakula has produced what he calls a biblical theology rock opera. There you go. It's a 14-track album that traces the story of God's unfolding master plan from Genesis to Revelation and all the way through points out how each story, each part, is all about Jesus. Um, the music is all done by Ben, so it's obviously awesome. But even more importantly, the words help you know the Bible better. It's a no-brainer. It's great for listening in the car with or without kids. Buy a CD from Ben or find it on Spotify. Listen to Master Plan. Secondly, if you want to learn more about biblical theology, read some books. There are plenty of great books. Some of them are up on the screen. One that's been particularly helpful to me is that middle one, GPS, God's Plan for Salvation. It really gives you a hands-on idea and helps you see clearly the unity of the scriptures around Jesus. So what have we learned from all this? I want to conclude with three short points. And you might see them. You've got a little fill-in-the-blank if you've got a little outline there. Firstly, we've seen God's character. We've seen that he is humble. He is the giver of gracious blessings. Amidst all the big-picture Bible overview, all about Jesus' huge promise business, I also want you to see the character of God, not just the cosmicness of the promise, but the heart of the promiser. And I want to ask this, do you know him? Do you know the Lord God as he has revealed himself? Humble, gentle, lowly. Secondly, I hope we can all see God's master plan. Do you see how big it is? He's got a big rescue plan, which we see unfolding all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New all the way through, the Bible has one author, one coherent message, one purpose, one destination, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center, the focal point of all of God's work in the world. And so my third application point is to ask you another question. 
Where do you fit in with God's master plan? If God has this big plan for the world, well, what's the big plan for your life? What will be the trajectory of your life going forward? How will you spend the next 20 years or however you've got left? God is on a mission in this world. We're so privileged that we're at right at the end of it and we can look back on the whole Bible and see it all worked out and unfolding. What is God doing in the world now? He is gathering his church together, building it up, united under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.10. That is what God is doing in this world. Where do you fit in with that? I wonder what our church will look like in another 20 years' time. Will you give your next 20 years to see churches grow and the gospel preached in Sydney's New South West? I know that I want to be a part of that. I won't be here in 20 years' time because I want to be part of seeing new churches grow and planted to reach crowds around us who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I know that I want to give my life to serving God's mission and God's King because can you think of a single better thing that is worth living for? Don't waste your life. God has fully revealed his master plan and he's now gathering people together under the Lord Jesus. Let's commit our lives to live in light of the eternal kingship of David's son. Let's recalibrate once again the trajectory of our lives from our default setting of self-serving living to join in God's mission of building his church. Amen.